I think first memories are very revealing about people. They stick in one's mind for a reason. And Jefferson's first recollection is one that's uh, famously repeated. That is, he remembers being placed on a pillow and handed up to a slave on horseback to be, to be taken. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. The story you just heard was the first known memory of Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence, third president of the United States, and, as we'll be focusing on today, a man who in many ways thought and acted like a lawyer, because he was one. From 1767 to 1774, before heading off to the Continental Congress, Jefferson was a successful attorney in Virginia. Hundreds of complex cases crossed his desk. To help us understand the significance of these years and of Jefferson's legal mind, our guest for today's episode is David Koenig. I'm David Koenig. I'm professor of history and arts and sciences and professor of law in the School of Law. Before we dive into Jefferson's time as a lawyer, let's return to his first memory when he was lifted up to an enslaved person on horseback. Evidently, this is a well-known story. I hadn't heard it before, or at least don't remember hearing it. Some people see this episode as sort of emblematic of Jefferson's privilege. He's literally being handed to another person to be carried. It also shows how slavery was part of Jefferson's life, even as a child. But Koenig wanted to dig deeper into why this moment might have been important enough to be Jefferson's first memory. He wanted to find out what actually happened that day. And sure enough, it was a major life event. Well, it's very significant. Uh, the family was moving that day. They were moving from uh, the farm or the plantation that his father, Peter Jefferson, owned to another plantation, a plantation of one of his dear friends who had just passed away and who had mentioned in his will that he wanted Peter Jefferson to be not just executor of this, the estate, but guardian of his children. This is a pretty extraordinary request when you think about it. To ask a friend to leave home, move his entire family, and essentially adopt a second set of children. But Peter Jefferson did it. And Koenig believes this left a strong impression on the young Thomas Jefferson. I think it's emblematic of Jefferson's memory of his father, which is a very much uh, neglected aspect of understanding his personality. He admired his father enormously. He saw his father as a kind of patriarch whose time was devoted to serving others. And I think this left an indelible memory on him, especially since his father then passed away when Jefferson himself was only 14, thrusting him into the odd position of being the, uh, the man of the house uh, with uh, all of these children and uh, very um, little support around him. Koenig is working on a book about Jefferson's career as a lawyer, and he believes that Peter Jefferson's life and values influenced how his son approached both his practice as a lawyer and his ideas about government. Like Peter Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson believed that those with authority had an obligation to others below them. Of course, ideas about who is below whom have changed somewhat over the centuries. This is not to deny that he was paternalistic. He was hierarchical. He believed in uh, the superiority of whites over blacks, of men over women. But unlike many of the people of his time, he believed that that power brought with it an obligation. In order to gain these types of insights, Koenig has spent years combing through a huge archive of Jefferson's personal notes and law documents. In order to make sense of any of it, he more or less had to train himself to be a lawyer in 18th century Virginia. 
And over time, the broader significance of Jefferson's years as a lawyer started to come into view. These documents, covered from top to bottom in Jefferson's neat, tiny handwriting, are windows into how his mind worked. So as I went through his notes, I, I was impressed by the depth of inquiry that he applied to these uh, law notes. Uh, not only was he interested in what the law was and taking down citations with footnotes, but he actually went and read the footnotes, which is extraordinary. People don't do that. They simply cite it, use it as authority, and leave it at that. But he was interested in finding out what was behind the law. Even more surprisingly, he copied down dissenting opinions from other judges. He always seemed to be focused not only on understanding and interpreting the laws of the day, but in figuring out how they might evolve and change over time. He took on the most complex types of cases, things like property, trusts, and estates. And his analytical, forward-looking, lawyerly approach bled over into other parts of his life. And the more I then read of Jefferson's political activities, of his personal life, uh, the metaphors of the law just permeate what he's writing. He interpreted situations the way a lawyer would. Uh, he thought like a lawyer. This attitude applied even to how Jefferson approached slavery, one of the most perplexing aspects of his legacy. It's clear that Jefferson believed in the humanity of enslaved people. He thought that eventually they should and would be free. Yet he owned slaves and likely had a relationship and family with Sally Hemings, one of his slaves. This disconnect between ideals and actions also came up in his life as a lawyer. Slavery for Jefferson was a dilemma. It was a dilemma because it uh, ran counter to his notion of universal human rights. But in his actual practice, he had to deal with it because slaves were property and his clients brought property cases to him. And I think there are several aspects of his law practice that we have to pay attention to. One of the main areas where this really hit home was in cases in which a slave owner had died. The owner's property, including slaves, would often be scattered. This meant that families could be torn apart. That was the greatest terror that loomed above the life of any enslaved person. To be torn from a family, to have one's children torn away and sent to be never seen again. And it's clear from his handling of cases that he tried to handle or guide the estates of his clients in such a way that slave families would be left intact. They would not be broken up. And in fact, in his own buying and selling of slaves as a slave owner, we see that overwhelmingly, whenever he sold a slave, it was to reunite a family. Whenever he bought a slave, it was to reunite a family. So we see him working within the system that he was very uncomfortable with, but which with he, uh, he tried to work. The other type of case that would come up were freedom suits, when slaves fought for their freedom. In some cases, instead of representing a slave owner or that person's family, Jefferson was on the side of the enslaved person. It's clear that he was known to be a lawyer who handled cases like this. Uh, in 1770, a, a man of color came to his office, actually tried to obtain his freedom, tried to buy his freedom, was refused, wound up in Jefferson's office asking Jefferson to take the case, which he did. Jefferson ended up taking the case all the way to the highest court of Virginia, where he made a strong argument for the man's freedom. The, the basis of the freedom was, uh, was a technical one with regard to his lineage and his parentage. But he concluded his argument with an interesting 
comment, and that is, by the law of nature, we are all born free. And the law of Virginia does not cover this individual, and therefore this man is free. Uh, at that point, he was told to sit down by the judge, and the case was dismissed, and the man was sent back uh, to servitude. Though the case did not end well for Jefferson's client, the argument that every human is free by nature and enslaved only by law was taken up two years later in a case that ended slavery in England. Again, Jefferson was looking forward to where the law could and should go. This was something that he did throughout his practice. One can see in some of his notes arguments that have nothing at all to do with the practice of law in Virginia. But if you realize that he's picking up the Virginia Gazette, the newspaper at the time, and reading about what's happening in Philadelphia and what's happening in Boston, you can see that he is making up arguments. He's developing and generating arguments that have to do with the imperial crisis. Uh, and in many ways, what surprises me is that what one might think is just a, a technical notebook for the practice of law that has to do with land titles and debt collection is really a rough draft for the revolution. By bringing these technical law notes to life, Koenig is working toward understanding the life and mind of a well-known, but still somewhat mysterious, historic figure. My hope is that uh, by seeing this dimension of him, where he um, tried to use the law as a kind of governing template for obligations, for um, the authority that one had, uh, really tells us a lot about the way he tried to structure not just his life, but his, his state and his nation. Many thanks to David Koenig for joining Hold That Thought. For many more ideas to explore, please visit holdthatthought.wustl.edu. You can also keep up with the latest on Facebook and Twitter or subscribe to our weekly podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher Radio. Thanks for listening.